Good evening. Good evening. Is this everyone? Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 44? Now, last week we kind of stopped right in the middle of the narrative because we just had to end somewhere. Um, but let me recap uh, what happened. Uh, you remember how that, as God had given Pharaoh a couple of dreams about seven years of plenty being followed by seven years of famine. Well, and of course, Joseph interpreted those dreams and, and Pharaoh appointed him as prime minister to take care of all the gathering of the surplus during the seven plentiful years to store up for the seven years of famine. When we come to chapter 42, the famine was very severe in the land of Canaan as well. So Jacob said to his sons, look, I heard there's grain down in Egypt. Go down there and buy us some grain so we can you know, survive. So the guys went down there. Uh, the uh, 10 of them left, of course, um, Benjamin at home. Joseph, they thought was dead or didn't know where he was. They had sold him into slavery uh, 22 years earlier. And so they went down there and they stood before Joseph and not recognizing him to be Joseph. He's quite a bit older now. He's He's got uh, the robes of state on. He's speaking Egyptian, talking to them through a translator. He recognizes them immediately. They have no idea who he is, okay? They just think he's this dignitary. Well, he starts giving them a bad time right from the get-go, all right? And uh, you guys are spies. Well, no, we're not spies. We just came here to buy grain. You know, we're all the sons of one man, blah, blah, blah. And prove to me you're not spies, Joseph said, you know, through the translator, you know. Uh, are there any other brothers than what's right here? Well, we have one other brother. He's the youngest. He's with our father. Well, I'll keep one of you here. The rest of you go back and bring that younger brother here to prove to me you're not spies. Oh, my goodness. They had no, what in the world is this, right? So they leave Simeon, go back down to Canaan, told Jacob what happened. He's furious with them. He said, why did you even tell him you had a brother? Well, how are we supposed to know? He asked us, do you have a brother? You know, is there anybody else? And we told him, well, yeah, there's one more. How are we supposed to know? He's going to say, bring him down here so I can see him. So anyways, Jacob said, well, there's no way. I'm not losing uh, Benjamin. I lost Joseph. You know, Rachel only had two sons. I'm not going to lose Benjamin. All right. Well, I don't know how many months passes, six, seven, eight months maybe. Uh, they're out of food again. So he tells the guys, go back down to Egypt and buy some more grain. And they said, look. The guy told us, he was pretty rough with them. The guy told us, if we don't bring our youngest brother with us, we're not going to even stand, he won't even meet with us. And Jacob was furious, and he, you know, eventually he gave in. What could he do? He says, okay, he says, you know, go ahead and take your younger brother down there, and, you know, if I am bereaved of him, I am bereaved. So they went down, okay, and to make matters worse, as we said last time, as we were listening our reading, uh, we saw how that, uh, as soon as they left that first time, uh, they, they got home and they checked their sacks to get the grain out of it and found all their money bags were in their grain sacks. That freaked them out. It's like, uh-oh, he's going to think now we stole this money uh, back, okay? So now, and Jacob says, well, look, take that money back with you and take more money for the to buy more grain, and let's just pray it goes well. 
So they get down there, and they don't know what to expect, okay? They told the steward, not Joseph, but his right-hand guy, look, you know, when we got home, we found all our money in our sacks with the grain. We don't know how it got there, and the guy was playing cool with them because Joseph and him were in on this. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. I had your money. Your God has given you money in your sacks. Now it's like their minds are being blown all over the place, right? So they're scared to death to stand before this guy, this mean guy, Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph, right? So they, they, they you know, want to have a meeting with him so they can buy more grain. And the steward says, you know what? He's asked for you guys to come and have lunch with him at his house, the palace. I'm, think, I'm sure they're thinking, what? First he wants to throw us all in jail. He does put him in jail for three days. Now he wants us to go to his palace to have lunch. This guy's a wacko. We don't even know what to make of this guy, right? So they had, you know, they had um, lunch with this guy as we studied last time, and it went very well. Let's pick it up now, chapter 44, verse 1. And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Also put my cup, the silver cup, uh, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his grain money. So he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, uh, they and their donkeys. Now, they don't know what's going on, okay? They've had a good night's rest. They're leaving. And let me just say this, okay? I'm sure that when they took off that morning, they were feeling pretty good, feeling pretty joyful. What do you mean? Well, it had gone remarkably well, okay? I mean, think about this, all right? The second meeting with this prime minister went very well. Not only did he not throw them in jail for stealing the money back from their first visit, which they didn't steal, of course, but, you know, they didn't know what happened. Uh, not only did he not throw them in jail, right, uh, from taking the money back from their first visit, but um, th their mission had been accomplished. They had bought uh, plenty of grain for the whole family, enough for everyone to eat for probably another six or eight months. Uh, Simeon had been released. They had kept Simeon the whole time. So he had been released. Benjamin was safely traveling home with them unharmed. And to top it all off, they had a wonderful lunch the day before with the prime minister himself in the palace. Uh, great food, great wine. Everything couldn't have gone better, I'm sure they were thinking. Or so they thought. Verse 4. When they had gone out of the city, they were not yet far off. Joseph said to his steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks this cup? This is the special cup that he drinks from, and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing, so stealing this cup. Now, we know from other sources that the ancients did use uh, sacred cups as divination devices, but I don't personally think Joseph practiced divination, nor does he ever say he did. He's going to say, don't you know that a man like me can practice divination? But I, I'm sure he didn't really practice divination. Uh, it was all part of this ruse to scare these guys, uh, to break them, bring them to a point of confession of, for their sin over what they had done to Joseph so many years earlier. And uh, the accusation by Joseph through the steward must have hit them especially hard. Uh, he said, Joseph was really speaking, had coached the steward to say this, why have you repaid evil for good? Why have you repaid evil for good? Now, Joseph 
had never done any evil to his brothers. All right? He had only treated them with love and respect. But in, in return for his good shown to them, they in turn did evil to him. Now, here's the thing. We've talked about this before. Returning good for evil. When somebody does you evil and you return good for it, that's godly. That's, that's of God. When you return good for good or evil for evil, that's just human. If you return evil for good, that's demonic. That's demonic. When somebody shows you kindness and goodness and you return evil to them, that's of the devil. All right? So verse 6, So he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants should do such a thing. Look, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So confident are Joseph's brothers of their own innocence and goodness. Okay, look at we're really good guys. We're very good men. Okay? Look, we could have kept that money that we found back in our sacks after the first visit. But see, we proved that we are good moral guys. We brought back that money and brought other money to buy more grain. Look, Joseph's brothers, okay, there's lessons, spiritual lessons sprinkled throughout this story for all of us to learn from, all right? But Joseph's brothers were so confident in their own innocence and goodness, that they actually based their future judgment upon it. Look, as I read that this afternoon, the Holy Spirit kind of hit me with this, that they really at this point reflect the attitude of so many in our culture who are so confident in their own moral and religious goodness. Many are moral and not religious, but you understand. We have a lot of moral people in this country, a lot of religious people, and sometimes their religious people are moral. Many times they're not. All right, But there are many in our country who are so confident in their own innocence and moral goodness that they believe when they stand before Joseph, quote-unquote, which of course in their case would be the Lord Jesus Christ, they're so confident they are not going to be found guilty of any wrongdoing. They're going to escape judgment. See, this is the problem today. A lot of people, uh, well, every man, the Bible says, proclaims each his own goodness. We all think pretty much that we're good people. It's not until you start reading the Bible that you realize God never said we were good people. In fact, the Bible says there is none good but God. Okay, Because in the Bible, goodness is defined as moral perfection. See, when you tell people, they say, I'm a good person, I think I'm going to go to heaven. Are you morally perfect? Oh, of course not. Who is? Then you're not good enough to get to heaven by your own works. Because goodness in the Bible is measured by moral perfection. And only one is morally perfect. That's God Almighty. Therefore, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is sinless perfection. And the wages of sin is death. Every person on the face of the earth is going to stand before a righteous and holy God and give an account someday. And they're going to either do it in one of two ways. Every person will stand before God either in their own righteousness or in Christ's righteousness. If they stand before God clothed in their own human righteousness, you can read Isaiah, what is it, 64, verse 6. God looks at those as filthy rags. 
The only righteousness God accepts into heaven is the righteousness of Christ, which we can clothe ourselves with or, and do clothe ourselves with when, when we receive him as our Lord and Savior. People will never see their need for a Savior until they first see themselves as sinners. As long as the devil could convince them they're really good people, then why do good people really need a Savior? They might go to church to keep their bases covered, but honestly, in their heart of hearts, they are so convinced they are not guilty. And when they stand before God, he's going to look at them and go, oh, you, come on in. I've been waiting for you. You know, just we've been talking about you, how great you have been on the, you know, that kind of thing. They think that. It's not going to happen, obviously. Anyway, so verse 9. With whomever of your servant it is found. So, you know, we, we haven't taken, you know, the prime minister's special cup that he divines with. With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. Verse 10. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. So Joseph coaches this guy to tell them, no, look, uh, we don't work like that. My master's a righteous guy, and whomever we find the cup with, that person will become a slave. The rest of you guys will go free. We're not going to punish all of you because of one man's sin. And um, that's important because God promises us, promises us in his word that he never punishes um, the children for the sins of the fathers, or vice versa. Remember what uh, it says in John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, which means that the great white throne judgment, that's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. He is going to be seated on his throne. He's going to judge every unbeliever. Righteous people, those who have received him, we don't need to be judged. We'll go up to the judgment seat to receive our rewards, but not punishment, because there is now no condemnation, no judgment for those who are in Christ. So we won't stand before him in a punitive way. We will stand before him like athletes approach uh, the judge's seat to receive their awards for competing. But Jesus is the one who will judge all. Uh, the Bible says he is coming to judge the living and the dead uh, you know, at his kingdom. When he brings the kingdom, when he comes the second time, he will at that time judge the living and the dead, those who have re rejected him. But notice this. Uh, you don't have to turn there. In Ezekiel 18, God says, though, that uh, the son shall not bear the guilt of the father, neither the father shall bear the guilt of the son. Every man will bear an answer for their own sins. So even in this section, verse 10 of chapter 44, we see, the uh, character of the Lord Jesus Christ coming through Joseph once again. Joseph, there's over a hundred ways in Genesis that Joseph is a type of Christ. He's probably, in fact, I know he is, the one in Scripture who most represents the Lord Jesus Christ in every single way. All right, And we see this sprinkled through. I'm just pulling out a few of them. We could spend several weeks just looking at all of these. Okay, But uh, Jesus will not hold anyone else accountable for somebody else's sin. Now, Genesis 44, verse 11. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground, and each opened his sack. So he searched and began with the oldest and left off with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now, the guys don't even say anything. They don't have to. They know what this means. 
So what did they do? They tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. This was the worst thing that could ever have happened in their minds. And I'm sure on the way back to the city, they're looking at Benjamin going, what did you do? I didn't do anything. Honest. I didn't take it. Verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. I mean, they're just desperate now. I mean, they're just prostrate on the ground, begging for mercy. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? And again, guys, I don't believe that Joseph actually practiced divination. I think he's simply pretending to be an Egyptian. That's who they think he is, right? Now, it was common knowledge that the Egyptians did practice divination. And the implication was that the Egyptians were tied into what we would call the occult. They were in contact with their gods, they thought. We know they were in contact with demons and such. So demons can feed people information. And the Egyptians were well-known, especially those in the higher echelons. Uh, they, they were believed to have special powers. And so what he is saying to them, you know, he's, he's masquerading as an Egyptian. He's basically saying, don't you know as an Egyptian I practice divination and I know all things? In other words, I know what you've done. So don't try to hide it, just confess it. Well, again, Joseph comes across as Jesus. What does the Bible say of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 4.13? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must someday give an account. So on that day of judgment, when people stand before the Lord, you know, and they think they're good people and they're going to explain to him why they deserve to get into heaven, he's going to reveal to them everything they've ever done. And they're going to realize they weren't good people. They were sinners. Verse 16 then Judas said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out, and the idea is God has revealed the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. Now, in many ways, guys, I think this was the confession Joseph had been waiting for. Judah is not just speaking for himself. He's speaking on behalf of all the brothers, except for Benjamin, of course. And what he is saying is, God has found or God has revealed the iniquity of your servants. This has been weighing on them for the last 22 years, what they did to Joseph. This is what Joseph has been waiting for. Remember now, Joseph is a type of Christ. Can't forgive these guys until there is confession. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Greek word for confess is a word that literally means to say the same thing. See, here's the deal. So often, when somebody gets caught in a sin, they may acknowledge they have done wrong, but then often they follow it quickly with some kind of an excuse or blaming somebody else. And I, I personally think God hates that more than the sin itself. He knows we're all sinners and our frame is but dust. He knows that. We're weak. He wants us to confess our sins so he can forgive us. But if we then just try to blame somebody else or make excuses for ourselves, there can't be forgiveness. He can't extend to us forgiveness. So there has to be confession, right? And I really see in this that Judah, speaking on behalf of all the brothers except for Benjamin, is saying, 
We've been carrying this around for 22 years. And God has forced the issue. God has revealed our iniquity. This is happening because of what we done. We didn't do anything wrong now. We know that. This is happening because we are being judged by God for what we did 22 years ago. The time has come for us to pay up for what we did. This is what basically I believe he is saying. And God is giving us what we deserve. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Joseph is talking now. I'm not going to make you all slaves. Far be it for me to do that. Um, the man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. As for you, go up in peace to your father. And again, is a type of Christ, Joseph being a type of Christ, but it says of Jesus that he will not punish the righteous with the wicked. And that's what he's saying. I'm not going to punish you righteous guys for not, you didn't do anything. The one who we found the cup with, he will be punished he will become my slave verse 18 then judah came near to him and said "O my lord please let your servant speak a word in my lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like pharaoh now at this point guys judah launches into the most poignant impassioned selfless plea on the behalf of one man for another man's life that you'll find anywhere in scripture except of course the lord jesus christ uh, the night before the cross as he prayed for all of us okay but this is the longest speech in the bible to me it's the most powerful um, the emotion comes right off the page of judah pleading to what he believes is the prime minister for the life of his youngest brother benjamin now you remember 22 years earlier uh, at that time, the second youngest brother, Joseph, was pleading for his life to these guys who had put him in a pit. They could care less. They were hard. They were cruel. And I think in some ways, Joseph wants to see if they're going to bail on this youngest brother. If, have these guys ever really changed at all? We're going to find out. Because they could have said, all right, well, <laughs> okay, we're out of here then. As long as, you know, you keep Benjamin. They didn't care about Joseph 22 years ago. And I think Joseph's testing them to see if they've really changed. And so Judah launches into this speech, verse 19. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, uh, you shall see my face no more. And so it was, when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we uh, may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my, my wife bore me two sons, that would be Rachel. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. 
Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant, speaking of himself, now Judah, became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father. Now you remember that it was Judah who came up with the idea to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place. Now he offers to become a slave in his brother Benjamin's place. Well, let me just say this. The test was over. The change was obvious, and Joseph could no longer contain himself. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me, so that only now his brothers are standing with him. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. So he must have been wailing. I mean, I think that Joseph, he was remarkably um, mentally well-balanced in the light of all he had been through. Okay, psychologically, this guy was so well, I mean, so healthy. Uh, it was remarkable, only the grace of God. But that didn't mean he didn't have a lot of pent-up hurt that you know and i think now that these guys have confessed uh their sin that they have shown that they have changed that judah is saying look uh you know 22 years ago i did something really stupid really selfish and i'm not gonna let it happen again i'm gonna i'll give my life for the youngest uh brother and i think that that just touched joseph i think that released 22 years of pent-up pain I think it was just an instant closure for him. He wept aloud. The Egyptians heard it. Verse 3, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. The Hebrew is very strong. They were terrified in his presence. I can't imagine what they were thinking and feeling at that moment, it must have been a mixture of shock and awe, coupled with horror and abject terror. I mean, you can imagine everything was swirling around this at the same time. Shock, terror, everything. These guys didn't know what to, you know, I am Joseph. You think, you think he would have said, you know, guys, you better sit down for this. This is going to rock your world, what I'm about to tell you. Just hits him with it, okay? Right in the solar plexus, all right? Verse 4, and Joseph said to his brothers, please, come near to me. So they came near. I'm sure they weren't real ginger about it. <laughs> then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. I want you to notice this. Joseph, again, is the type of Christ. The first time he came to his brothers, he was not revealed to them. It was only the second time they knew who he was and that he was not only their brother, he was the savior of the world. All right. 
I bring that up because in Acts 7, when, when um, Stephen is giving his defense before the Sanhedrin, at one point he begins to really kind of tighten the screws on these leaders. He's recounting their history. And they always love, the Jewish people love to hear about their history. They knew it, but they love to hear people talk about it, you know. And they said, you know, your forefathers, the ones you respect so much, um, had a pattern that you are, you know, walking in. You remember Moses, when Moses believed God had called him to be a deliverer. And he tried to deliver his people out of the bondage of Egypt, but they wouldn't follow him. And they basically, you know, turned against him. And so he had to run and hide for 40 years and became a shepherd. But the second time, they received him as their deliverer. And Joseph, he says the first time his brothers appeared before him, they, he was not revealed to them. But the second time, and he was proven to be the Savior of the world. You've done the same thing with Jesus, your Messiah. You have not received him. You have not recognized him as your brother, the one that was prophesied was coming, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But when he comes the second time, every eye is going to see him, and the Jewish people are going to mourn because they will realize at that time that they killed their own Messiah. So it's interesting. Again, Joseph is a type of Christ. Again, verse 4. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will neither be plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. You know, Joseph personified what Paul the Apostle would put in parchment many centuries later that all things work together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. All things are working together for our good. And he personifies that very thing. Now, I have to say that I love Joseph. He's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. He takes an incredibly gracious and spiritually mature attitude toward his brothers here. I mean, when you realize especially that he could have called for their execution on the spot. He could have had them executed on the spot. He had that kind of power. But rather he is kind, gracious, and forgiving towards them. Now listen, that doesn't release them from the guilt of what they did to him. Individual forgiveness depends not on somebody bestowing it upon us. That has to be taken to God. So these men had to confess their sin to God individually and directly for God to forgive them. And you know what, guys? They may have done that years earlier. They may have done that. I mean, their guilt was such where they could possibly have confessed this to God individually and asked for forgiveness. You say, well, why were they still wrestling with so much guilt? Because sometimes we have a hard time letting go of the guilt we've done, even though God has you know, forgiven us. We sometimes have a hard time letting go of the guilt. You know, Paul, the apostle, dealt with that guilt his whole life. I mean... Before he got saved, he thought he was serving God by persecuting the Christians, right? And he would drag them into court. He would consent to their deaths. He would make them blaspheme at the point of a sword. He was terrible, all because he thought he was serving God. 
After he got saved, he was forgiven, of course, but he never really forgave himself. You see it come through in his letters. He called himself the chief of sinners, you know. Uh, he, he was hard on himself. I think Paul had a hard time, even though God had forgiven him, I, I think he had a hard time forgiving himself. Is that a good thing to do? No. And Paul would have been the first one to tell you that if that's what was going on. Because when God forgives us, who are we to hold something against ourselves if God has told us, I've forgiven you? Are we more righteous than God? Are our standards higher than his? That if he can forgive us based on what Jesus did, who are we to hold anything against us? Or anyone else that has wronged us, that has asked him for forgiveness? We, we need to be careful here, okay? This is a very important thing. Just because Joseph extended forgiveness... Now listen to me. Joseph is not absolving them of their sin. He's simply emphasizing the sovereignty of God over all circumstances and how he even uses the hate and the evil of others directed toward us to bring about his ultimate plans. This is a perfect example of this very thing. Here's the thing. When we ask God for forgiveness, he forgives us. But if we are able to make restitution in some way, we have to do that. Okay? Confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Yes, we confess our sins to God. Uh, and I don't think I really elaborated on what I said confess means to say the same thing. And the idea is that if I have done something wrong, something that God has said is a sin, I come to him and I say, God, Lord, you told me this was wrong. You told me it was a sin. I did it. And I, I'm saying the same thing as you. It was wrong. I, did, I committed sin. I ask you for forgiveness. That's true confession. Now, we do that first. But after we confess our sins to God and receive forgiveness, then we need to go to the other person and confess our sins. If we've done something to hurt them, we have to go to them and confess that to them. Because until we do, we won't fully be, yes, God will forgive us. But he wants us to make amends, confess our sins to each other, so that we can forgive one another. And that's, I think, what was really going on here. It could be these guys had confessed their sins to God. I don't know. Maybe they didn't. But if they had done that, now what God wanted to do was to tie up all the loose ends and have them appear before Joseph and, uh, you know, confess to him what they had done and Joseph now extending forgiveness to them. And I just don't think... We're going to be healthy, fully healthy uh, psychologically and spiritually if we don't do this, if we don't do this, okay? Sometimes you can't make amends. The person has died, then you can only confess to God. But if you can make amends, do it. But I just look at Joseph and how he handled this. I, you know, don't beat yourself up. It wasn't you who sent me here. It was God. God sent me here because of this famine that was coming. And he wanted to use me to save many people alive, including my own family. If we would see our lives in light of this truth, I think we would know true peace a lot more than we do. And we'd be able much more to forgive those that had wronged us, especially our family members. But verse 9, Joseph said to the, his brothers, Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, 
and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. Now you've all got Bible maps. You'll notice that Goshen, the land of Goshen, is located in the northeastern part of Egypt. It's, an ex it's one of the most fertile places on the face of the earth. You're talking about perfect land for, for shepherding and things like that, okay? You couldn't find a better place than Goshen. Covered about 900 square miles. Big area. Verse 12, And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is, uh, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. This is not a dream, okay? Uh, this, is, this is true. It's happening. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. They really hadn't embraced until this point, him and Benjamin. Verse 15, moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Yeah, they had a lot of catching up to do, okay? I mean, you know, after the shock had worn off and they were able to grasp the reality of what was going on, I'm sure the first thing they wanted to know was, what happened after we sold you into slavery? What, what happened to bring you to the place of prime minister over all the known world? Well, they had a light, nice long talk. Verse 16, Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Well, look at all of Egypt loved Joseph. They all loved him. They all believed that if it wasn't for Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and gathering the grain, they'd all probably be dead by now. So whatever made Joe happy made them happy. All right? <laughs> Joe's family are here. Whatever they need, we want to make them happy. Verse 17, And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your animals and depart and go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, and bring, uh, bring your father and come. And do, also do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Go quickly, go down, go back to Canaan, get all the family, okay? Your dad, all the family members, you know, Uncle Harry and all, just bring them all. Don't worry about gathering up all your little possessions, I'll take care of you. Just get back here as soon as you can, right? Now, these carts were, you know, large wagons that were pulled by oxen. From what I understand, they were royal wagons used by the king for the king's business. I mean, this was like, you know, sending 50 uh, government, federal, you know, limousines, something like that, okay? This was a big deal. In fact, uh, one commentator said to return to Canaan with, quote-unquote, carts from Egypt was the cultural equivalent of landing a jumbo jet among a tribe of isolated savages. It would be the stuff legends are made of, end quote. Big deal. Verse 21, And the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt. 
and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. What is Joseph saying to them? He is reassuring them. Okay? He is saying, look, don't have second thoughts along the way. Don't become worried or anxious or, or afraid. I have forgiven you. I have forgiven you. And only a glorious home awaits you when you come back to me. Sounds again like our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? How many Christians have I seen over the years who I know are saved? And yet they still wrestle with their sins. They are still feeling condemned because they don't measure up in some area or are still wrestling with some area of bondage or a bad habit. And so they need to be encouraged along the way because they feel that maybe Jesus doesn't love them anymore. Maybe when they stand before him, they won't receive heaven. They'll be cast into hell because they weren't the kind of people that they knew they should have been. And again, Joseph, acting like our Lord Jesus, assures them, don't become troubled along the way. Hey, the Christian life is not an easy life. It's getting harder by the day to be a Christian. And I don't know if we're going to see real persecution before the rapture comes. We may. I know our brothers and sisters around the world are already experiencing persecution, many of them. So, you know, why we think we're going to be exempt from these things indefinitely, I don't know. I just know this. We're going to need to remember what our Lord Jesus has said to us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I have paid your debt in full. Your sins have been washed away, never to return. And when you stand before me, you will stand before me in my righteousness, and you will only have a glorious home awaiting for you in heaven forever. We need to remember that. Verse 25. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob, their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Now, again, give the, this is an old man. I mean, just that little bombshell. Guy could have grabbed his chest and fell over dead. Okay. Joseph is still alive and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Wow, basically. Oh, this is too much. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. For 22 years, 22, maybe 23 years by this time, Jacob has sorrowed over his son because... In his mind, he was dead. Great sorrow. Probably a day didn't go by without Jacob mourning over his son Joseph. But all of a sudden now comes the good news that Joseph was not dead. He is alive. And in Jacob's mind at that instant, Joseph is now resurrected. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples, right now your hearts are filled with sorrow, but very soon they will be, your sorrow will be turned into great joy? Same thing, okay? Same thing. When the boys told Jacob this, they said, you guys, you, you're, you're kidding, right? I can't believe it. Dad, look outside. There's a whole caravan waiting to take us down to Egypt, all right? You know, earlier Jacob had said, all things are against me. He didn't have the big picture. 
actually all things were working for him. And now we see the fulfillment. You know, the prophet Jeremiah would say something, or God would say something to the prophet Jeremiah many centuries later, but it applies right here at this moment. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. They are thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So when things are rough right now, God is telling us, remember, I'm not working for the moment, I'm working for the future. I am preparing you right now through the things you're going through for a glorious future that awaits you. Trust me. Well, chapter 46, verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. Now, Beersheba was on the southernmost border of the land of Canaan. After Beersheba, you were in the desert. That was the last, you know, post of civilization before you entered into the Sinai Desert. Uh, Abraham had lived there for a while, and while he was there, he dug a well. Isaac had also lived there for a while, and while he was there, he built an altar. In fact, Beersheba was the place where Jacob had grown up. And so it was a place that held a lot of fond memories for him. And so he stops there and uses the altar his father Isaac had built to offer up a sacrifice to God before leaving the promised land to go down to Egypt. And as we read the story, he seems somewhat uneasy about making the move down to Egypt. Why? Well, maybe because he remembered when his grandfather Abraham and his grandmother Sarah went down there. Uh, Abraham got himself into some trouble trying to pass off Sarah as his sister, remember? Uh, and Pharaoh wanted to marry her, wanted to put her into his harem. And God forbid that, of course. And so you had an unbelieving Pharaoh, not this Pharaoh, that was a, obviously much earlier, uh, but the Pharaoh with the days of, of Abraham rebukes him. Okay, an unbeliever rebuking Abraham. Uh, and so that's, of course, in Genesis 12. You can read about that. Uh, so Jacob, no doubt, is thinking, well, when my grandfather went down here, uh, it wasn't so good for him. And then later in chapter 26, we read how that during a time, and that was a time of famine that caused Abraham to go down to Egypt. During another time of famine, during the days of his father Isaac, God appeared to Isaac and spoke very specifically, he was not to go down to Egypt. He said, you are to stay right here in the land of promise, and I will take care of you, I will provide for you, and, your, and I'll bless you guys. So Isaac stayed. Now Jacob, no doubt, is thinking about these things. And here he is doing what? Going down to Egypt, motivated solely by the invitation of Joseph and Jacob's emotions to see Joseph, but not really a decision that he based on prayer and the leading of God. So he's apprehensive and a little fearful about this whole deal. But the Lord appears to him. Verse 2, Then God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. Well, all right. The phrase, Joseph will put his hand on your eyes, is God's way of saying that, Jacob, you're going to die in Egypt. He's saying, look, you're going to die in Egypt in peace. 
Your son Joseph will be by your side. And he will close your eyes. He'll put his hand on your face. Close your eyes when you're dead. You're, you're gonna, it's going to be okay. You're going to go down there. You're going to die in peace. But we remember that 215 years earlier, God had first appeared to Abraham and promised him that he would make him a great nation. Now, 215 years has passed. How many people went down to Egypt? How many descendants of Jacob went down to Egypt? 70 people. 215 years from the promise that God gave to Abraham that he was going to make Abraham and his descendants a great nation. 215 years, 70 people. When they're down in Egypt, 430 years will pass, and when God finally leads them out of Egypt under Moses, between 2 and 3 million come out of Egypt. God fulfilled his promise and made them a great nation down in Egypt. Verse 5, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, uh, their little ones and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and went down to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now these were the names of the children of Israel, uh, Jacob and his sons, who uh, went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. And you know what? I'm going to let you wrestle with these names because you can mispronounce them as well as I can. Uh, we'll skip down to verse 26. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body beside Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. Okay, now, here again we read how that after jo uh, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, he uh, sent word back to his father to get all the family and come, all the relatives, and come and live in Egypt. He'll take care of them. And we read how 70 people came to Egypt of the family. That was the whole family. That uh, number is also recorded in Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, and Deuteronomy 10, verse 22. Both passages say that 70 people went down to Egypt. That was Jacob's entire, uh, entire family. However, the Septuagint, now the Septuagint, um, the Masoretic text has 70. The Septuagint, what was that? That was the uh, Greek translation of the hebrew scriptures done by 70 scholars septuagint means 70 hebrew had become a dead language okay i mean after the children of israel had been bounced around from nation to nation and you know taken captive and all uh hebrew was only spoken by the priests it was a, much like latin uh you know had died out and so the common Jew couldn't read their own scriptures. So at one point, 270 B.C., they commissioned 70 scholars to translate the Hebrew scriptures, the Masoretic text, into the Septuagint. The Septuagint uh, in chapter 40, Genesis 46, verse 27, reads 75 people. That's the same number that Stephen uh, used in his defense uh, in front of the Sanhedrin. He taught in Acts 7, he talks about how 75 people went down to Egypt. Uh, of course, uh, Stephen was a Hellenist Jew. He lived outside of Israel. And being a Hellenist Jew, he read the Septuagint, no doubt. But he says, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there were 75 people. Now, a lot of 
critics and, uh, and skeptics have jumped on this and see in this a discrepancy, uh, an, a, an error in the scriptures. You got one group set of scriptures say in 70, another uh, say in 75. Uh, look, it's not really a discrepancy. It all depends on how you count the descendants of Jacob. Let me read to you something Gleason Archer wrote in his great book, Encyclopedia of Bible Difficulties. I'll just read you a little passage on this. What he says as he explains this, he said, and I quote, We therefore conclude that both totals, the one from the Hebrew Masoretic text and the Septuagint, are correct, though they were calculated differently. Jacob's own sons numbered 12. His grandsons born to his 12 sons numbered 52. There were already four great-grandsons born in Canaan by the time of the migration for a total of 66. Manasseh and Ephraim, born in Egypt, increased the total of 68. Jacob and his wife, and it only mentions one wife, so at this time, only one wife is left. We don't know if it was Bilhah, Zilpah, uh, or, or Leah. We don't know which one, okay? But Jacob and his wife brought it up to 70. But the Septuagint added the seven grandsons of the prime minister, Joseph, and admitted, now Joseph had nine kids in all. Ephraim and Manasseh are the ones that were, you know, the ones that are mentioned here. But if you read down farther, you realize he had actually nine sons that were born to him in Egypt, okay? So Archer says it all depends on the way you count this, okay? If you count all of Joseph's grandkids, not just two, but the uh, eight, uh, the uh, seven others, and if you subtract Jacob and his wife, because he's talking about just his descendants and not Jacob and his wife themselves, then that would bring you to 75. And he just says, you know, you know, don't let something like that stumble you. It's just not worth it. I mean, you know, God's word is accurate. It's true. And sometimes we just don't understand how something was figured. We think it's a contradiction. It really isn't. All right, let's bring this to an end. Verse 28, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while, I would imagine. What a scene. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that... You may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination of the Egyptians. So what is Joseph saying? He's saying, Dad, look, I want to give you the best grazing land in Egypt. Now, to assure that Pharaoh signs on to that, when you stand in front of him, he's going to ask you, what do you do for a living? Make sure you tell them that you're all shepherds. Because in, in Egypt, shepherds were an abomination. So Pharaoh was going to go, hey, glad you're here, but... We're going to put you in the land of Goshen. What did that do? Well, it gave them the best land to raise livestock, right? But it also assured that God's people would not mix with, intermarry with the Egyptians. It would kind of keep them separate. 
because the Egyptians abhorred, and we've talked about this, they abhorred shepherds. They really didn't want anything to do with shepherds. They looked, they thought it was an abominable profession. So that would keep them separate and allow God to grow this nation from 70 to 75 people to 3 million uh, over the next 430 years, keeping them pure from any intermarrying with the Egyptians because he wanted to keep the, uh, especially the, the Messianic line pure so Messiah could be born. So this is the wisdom of God. You know, God knows what he's doing. Okay. Uh, you know, and uh, he just had this whole thing orchestrated. In fact, he brought this famine on the whole world just to get Jacob and his family down to Egypt where he could grow them into a great nation, eventually lead, lead them out under Moses, and eventually through which he would bring Messiah. Amazing. The plan of God. It's just, he's incredible. So next week, God willing, we will continue. I don't think we'll finish, but we might. We'll see. All right. Father, we thank you for our time in your word tonight. We just love you, Lord, and thank you for your great kindness, wisdom, goodness. And Lord, we just pray you continue to bless these studies. Continue to draw out for our learning the things that we can glean, things that will help us in our walk with you, things that will comfort our hearts along as we are on the journey, on the way. And uh, Lord, the devil is trying to condemn. The devil is trying to discourage. The devil has caused many to feel so condemned and worthless they have dropped out of the race. And Lord, we pray that you would recover them, that you would reassure them that their sins have been forgiven, that they're already perfect in your eyes because they're in Christ. And give them grace, Lord, to get back in the race. We need them for the fight. Uh, it's getting pretty rough. Give us good, solid warriors to do battle with the devil for the souls of men and women in these last days. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.